0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: There's possibly no better place for a virus to spread than an Olympic Games athlete's village. So how is the Australian Olympic team preparing for whatever threat the coronavirus may pose at the Tokyo Games in July? Hi, I'm Amanda Smith and this is Sporty. Also ahead, you can swim in an in-ground pool in your backyard or at an aquatic centre. But for lovers of
0: ocean rock pools, there's no better place for a dip. They are moody places. That's one of their appeals to swimmers. It's not the same conditions every day. It's a natural environment rather than a controlled one, so the pool is different every day. The swim is different every day, and that's a big part of the pleasure that it does deliver.
1: What though is the history of Australia's ocean pools and their future? That's ahead here on Sporty. The Tokyo Olympic Games get underway in just five months' time when 11,000 athletes from around the world will come together not just to compete but living together in close proximity. And although all the planning and preparation for these Games is well on track, what the organisers can't control or even predict is the course that the coronavirus will take over these next five months. The man responsible for the health and well-being of the Australian Olympic team is Dr David Hughes, the team medical director. David, what plans have you can you put in place for the 850 Australian athletes and officials due to participate in Tokyo?
2: In terms of what the Australian Olympic team can do to prepare, there isn't a vaccine and there is highly unlikely to be a vaccine between now and Tokyo. Yes, the World Health
1: Authority I think is saying that it's going to take probably up to 18 months to get a vaccine.
2: Yeah, obviously the coronavirus is a new phenomenon. It's highly contagious, but our preparation for coronavirus is the same as the preparation for other viruses is to ensure appropriate hand hygiene, which might sound really boring, but that is actually (laughs) one of the most effective ways to avoid all sorts of viral infections. And um, things like mobile phones, we try to encourage people to clean their mobile phones once a day because the average mobile phone has about the same germ load on them as a toilet seat. So it always sends shivers down Mm -hmm. my spine to see people, you know, scrolling through their mobile phone while they're eating lunch. Um, And so we will do all the normal things that we do each Olympics to reduce the risk of people contracting viral infections, and the same rules will apply to the coronavirus.
1: Well, leading up to the previous Olympic Games in Rio in 2016, there was the threat of the Zika virus. Uh, So coronavirus is the second disease outbreak you've had to contend Mm. with as medical director of the Australian Olympic Mm. team. What, What was similar or different about the Zika virus threat in 2016?
2: Yeah, it's sort of uncanny because the timing is almost identical. I can remember heading off on Christmas break before Rio and just starting to hear a few whispers about a new mosquito-borne disease in Brazil. By the time we got back from Christmas holidays, by mid-January, it was clear there was a significant problem. The timeline is almost identical with the coronavirus. And, you know, one thing that I'm always cognizant of speaking about the health of Olympic athletes is to keep in mind other population groups. I remember in the lead up to Rio, I sort of felt a bit uncomfortable that here I was talking about concern around a group of Olympic athletes which had access to fantastic first world medical services who were going to fly in be there for a few weeks and then fly out. Um, whereas, of course, the Brazilian population yeah. um, had to deal with this on a day-in, day-out basis, and and of course, there were many terrible stories about the effects on the health of unborn babies and newborn babies. And I also, in this situation, think that okay, we've got a situation where we're taking a group into Japan. Japan is a first-world country. It has clean water in the taps it has very high standards of living and uh you know, we're going to be going in there for a short time and coming back out. But if you look not far away at China and see the upheaval and the, the health burden on the people of China, you know, we have to, you know, I think just be a bit respectful, you know. So um, yes, we've got a challenge with the Australian Olympic team and that's my role. So I focus on that. But I do try and keep in mind that there are other people who are suffering far more as a result of the coronavirus than what the Australian Olympic team is likely to.
1: Well, at this stage, officials are still saying that the Tokyo Games are going to go ahead as planned. Yeah. But, David, come July, August, if someone comes down with coronavirus
2: in the Athletes' Mm -hmm. Village, what Mm -hmm. happens? Um, Well, if we had reason to suspect that someone had coronavirus, we would place them in a room on their own and place a mask on them. I would be um, hoping that we would have ready access to testing for coronavirus you know if you look at what japan's had to deal with with that issue with the um ship that has been more diamond princess cruise ship yeah yeah, yeah. so that the, you know the, the japanese health authorities have probably the most experience outside of china in terms of testing for coronavirus now i think it's important to point out that right now i don't think there is a public health official or an infectious disease expert anywhere in the world who can accurately tell us what the situation will be in Japan in July. No, um, so exactly. it, it is it is a case of dealing with this as it evolves. It is an evolving issue. We don't know how prevalent coronavirus will be in Japan by July, but we are certainly not complacent. I am talking to people pretty much on a daily basis, and I imagine I will be between now and the Tokyo Olympics. The thing
1: is, an Olympic Games athlete's village is really an, an absolutely ideal environment for a virus, this virus, to spread. You know, lots of people are there from all over the world, eating, sleeping, mm-hmm. washing in pretty close quarters. What are the contingency plans if there are multiple cases and it spreads quickly in the athlete's village, as we've seen with the, the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, off the uh, the coast of
2: Japan? Yeah. Look, the, the honest truth is we would take the advice of the public health officials. I mean, we keep isolation rooms amongst the Australian Olympic team. We have very good isolation procedures. We have nursing staff who are experts in isolation procedures for highly contagious viral illnesses such as norovirus. So they're very adept at what is required. You know, in planning for every Olympics, not just this one with coronavirus, we go through a risk mitigation process, and part of that is always around the outbreak, the potential outbreak of illness amongst the Australian Olympic team, because we know that, OK, an injury is a disaster for one athlete or maybe for a crew, but an illness of any sort, in particular if I use norovirus again as an example, is something that can wipe out a whole team within 24 hours. So you plan for the worst and hope for the best, obviously.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As the clock ticks down to the opening of the Tokyo Games, how how disruptive are the sort of concerns and fears around coronavirus to the Australian athletes who are now preparing to compete there? You know, I imagine your role at this stage is to not only be attentive to the risks, but to try and keep everyone calm about it.
2: Yeah, it's an important part of my role and the role of the other medical staff who are providing care for Olympic athletes that we minimise the chance of people panicking or having alarm. I mean, if you think of the Zika virus, you know, we had a very similar sort of situation where, you know, obviously most athletes going into Rio were people of childbearing age and there were, you know, I had parents ringing me concerned that this would mean that the children couldn't have their own children or that uh, there was going to be effects on babies years down the track and things you know for which there was no evidence but understandably there was concern and a lot of misinformation
1: well are Um, you are you similarly getting concerned phone calls from parents of athletes this time around uh,
2: look not yet but it's early um (laughs) you know I, I, i and you know i see it as part of my role it's it's challenging it's time consuming but what i believe is If I communicate regularly what the risk is and what the risk isn't, I mean, you're right that when we bring people together from all over the world and put them in a village, well, there will be some illnesses and things that are brought in. And so, um, yeah, at the end of the day, it certainly is always down to individuals as to whether, you know, if, if someone really believes deep in their heart that this is not a safe place to go, no one is going to force them to go. We were able to reassure people around Zika. I think there actually were one or two officials who may have been expecting children or unsure about their pregnancy status who felt that for them at that particular time it wasn't the right thing for them. There may have been one or two athletes who had concerns, who stayed away, but the vast majority of people made the decision that it was safe to go based on the information we gave them, and we didn't have any adverse outcomes as a result of Zika. We're very grateful for that, but we like to think that part of that was around good planning and providing appropriate information, Um, but it is sometimes difficult. The challenge is to articulate clear and reasonable information in an environment where Sometimes there is misinformation circulating. Um, It wouldn't surprise me if as the Olympic Games get closer, the reporting becomes a bit more fragmented. You know, alarmist stuff gets more clicks or gets more attention. And uh, there were um, certainly some alarmist headlines heading into Rio. If that happens again, I, I can't control that. All I can control is the message that I put out to the Australian Olympic team.
1: And Dr David Hughes is the medical director for the Australian Olympic team as well as chief medical officer at the Australian Institute of Sport and keeping a close watching brief on how the coronavirus situation evolves over these next few months leading up to the Olympic Games in Tokyo. If nothing else, I reckon our athletes will have fabulously clean hands and phones. This is Sporty with Amanda Smith. love the idea of swimming in the ocean but scared of big waves and rips and sharks that problem was addressed starting back in colonial times when along some parts of our coast ocean pools were made carved into the rocks so you can get the benefits and pleasures of being in the ocean without the same sorts of dangers in a moment we'll meet a historian who's researched the history of these ocean pools but first of all let's meet Robin Hall Robin has lived in Manly in New South Wales since 1968 and we're at her local ocean pool where she swam almost every day over those 50 plus years. It's the Fairy Bower Pool.
3: Well it's a rock pool that was formed by local residents back in 1929. It was actually just a bit of a natural dip in the rocky platform and in those days of course people weren't real competent swimmers and there was the fear of the sharks. So they decided to wall it up and make it into a rock pool interestingly and, it's it's a it's sort of triangular yes it is triangular and I think that was because the actual rocky platform was in that sort of natural shape so with with that that shape and it's not that big can you get a decent swim in there yes you can actually you can lap up and down some people bob up and down and do their exercises like bobbing corks in the water and um, so it's quite a nice sized pool for people who, who aren't going to be lapping up and down an Olympic pool. <laughs> and of course you've got the shallow end of the pool and then it graduates down deeper. Well it's the Fairy Bower Rock Pool. Have you ever seen any fairies here? No. <laughs> no. But it certainly attracts the kids I think when they think Fairy Bower Pool. Oh, yeah. It's had a few names over the years. It's been called the Green Pool, the Whitewash Pool. And, of course, Ferry Bower Pool. So, yeah, it's had a few names over the years. <laughs> so it's it's fabulous for kids. Your kids learnt to swim in this pool? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. We just put all the floaties on them and, of course, as their confidence grew, was diving in off the pool into the ocean with their little surfboards and things like that. And before we knew it, they were surfing Manly Point and the Bower. The pool just sort of sat here for many years, serving its purpose, everyone enjoying it. And then over time, the pool started to deteriorate. Uh, So then there was um, a bit of a battle with the the council, Manly Council, to get it refurbished or or, or the the bottom of the pool fixed up. There were cracks and leaks in it. It wasn't keeping the water. The pump kept breaking down all the time. And of course, it was very difficult to get any movement on doing something about it for quite some years and then finally it got to the point where uh, it was getting difficult to clean it because it was the surface of it had become so crumbly and a lot of the people using the pool were complaining about the state of the pool And there were mumblings in council that oh they may not bother doing anything at all and and then then there became all these outlandish ideas of what they should do with it and it's on a heritage register my understanding it is so we wanted it to be kept as it is we didn't want it to be changed in any way and of course there were plans put forward to put balustrading all around the edge of it and all this which opens up a can of worms so in the end they voted in favor of repairing it and giving it its whitewash sort of paint periodically. So at the moment we're quite happy that they're looking after it far better because I think they've realized themselves that yes, it is an asset. And now because of social media, over the last five years, people come from everywhere just to come and see you know, the sculptures, see the pool, swim in it. It's become you know, quite a tourist attraction.
1: Well, Robin, what does this ocean rock pool mean to you?
3: It just makes you feel good because you 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 don't even have to come down for for a long swim you can just duck down have a swim i guess i'm i'm lucky because i live so close i don't have to worry about getting a car park and things like that but even watching people coming from out of area the enjoyment they get is wonderful and it is the sort of place like as i've gotten older i can't always just go out in the ocean and swim but i know i can come down here and 90% of the time I can go in and have a swim and it, the conditions are good, you know. And even if the waves are washing over, it's quite exciting anyway. So, <laughs> so we get a bit of, bit of both, really, you know. It's like, yeah, and it always makes me feel good. And uh, for me, I wasn't well in 2014, and my biggest aim was once I get down to the pool and I can have a swim and walk back up again, I'm on the way to getting better. So, yeah, for me, it was a, it was a driving force. So it's wonderful, and I know I'm not alone there with the with the amount of people that enjoy it, so, yeah. It gets pretty crowded, though, now. It <laughs> never used to. That's the downside of it being loved so much. <laughs> loved, loved so much. But that's why we, we want to be able to make sure that it's looked after the pool.
1: So the Fairy Bower Ocean Pool at Manly was built in 1929, but a number of them are much older than that. The earliest known of these constructed ocean pools in Australia dates back to the 1820s in Newcastle, New South Wales. Many of Australia's ocean rock pools are in New South Wales. There are over
0: 100 along that bit of our coastline. And there are good reasons for that. Most of Queensland's coast is protected from the full force of the surf by the Great Barrier Reef and the Great Sandy Islands. Most of the New South Wales coast is exposed to the full force of the surf Murray-Louise McDermott, is a historian who's researched the history
1: of these pools.
0: And the New South Wales coast has also been a populated coast by a colonising population that didn't arrive with a lot of surf or swimming skills.
1: Well, the interesting thing about you is that you're based in Perth. How did you develop such an interest in ocean pools that are on the other side of the country?
0: Uh, well, I wasn't always based in Perth. I grew up in Brisbane. And uh, when I was a schoolgirl, there were actually some ocean pools on the Gold Coast. There aren't any maintained or in-use ones anymore. And then I moved to Canberra, and like a lot of Canberrans, I was spending uh, weekends and holidays down on the New South Wales south coast, so I came across the beautiful blue pool at Bermagui, and then I was living on the New South Wales south coast in the Shoalhaven, and I just began to see the enormous number of these ocean pools that existed in the Illawarra, and I became really curious about them and how there were so many of them and how they were so little known outside the Illawarra. So I thought that there was a, a whole story about ocean pools and how they came to be and how they mattered to a beach culture that wasn't being told enough.
1: Well, with, with the earliest constructed ocean pools then, who were they, who were they for? How were they used?
0: Well, the earliest one in Newcastle appears to be more or less the private pool for use by the the commandant of the convict settlement. So it was um, an anomalous case. It wasn't really designed as a public place at that stage. So the next one we find is in Wollongong. There was a sort of gully in the rocks below the lighthouse on the far side of the harbour, and by arranging rocks across the front of that gully, they created this very free-form-looking bathing pool And it was of such importance to Wollongong that Governor Gipps allowed convict labour to be diverted from harbour works to help improve that pool. It was considered an important part of making Wollongong into a, a seaside tourism destination.
1: Of the hundred or so ocean pools that are along the New South Wales coast, some are 19th century, but I think many of them were then built in the first half of the 20th century. What propelled that?
0: Uh, there are two reasons. One, um, bathing in public view in daylight hours becomes legal. So the surf beaches become popular. We've got a volunteer surf life-saving movement establishing itself. And that's part of the reason because people are attracted then to the surf coast, but surf life-savers are only available to patrol beaches on weekends and public holidays. So if you want to be able to swim safely at other times, you need some sort of structure that will provide safety, because there aren't trained humans around to do that.
1: All right. Now, that's interesting, because I would have thought with the rise of the surf lifesaver movement from early in the 20th century, lifesavers patrolling the beaches, that ocean pools would start to lose their popularity. But you're saying the contrary.
0: That's right. And in a number of cases, you'll find surf lifesavers were actively involved in helping to create ocean pools, one for a safety measure, and secondly, as a training facility for themselves.
1: What about for um, serious competitive swimming and training, like, you know, early Olympic Games?
0: From the 1890s onwards, competitive swimming starts to become a powerful force. Now, the the harbour pools are we've got calmer water, you can do faster times. But their world records are being set in the Bronte and Bondi baths. Because at that stage, you can set a world swimming record in a saltwater pool. Right, right. I was and you say, can't now. <laughs> but the ocean pools are all different
1: shapes and sizes. They're hardly standardised.
0: Then now, the Bronte baths is a really interesting case in point because it was constructed in the 1880s as a bathing pool. So, it, you know, it, it's not a rectangular shape. When they wanted to use it as a competitive pool, they needed a rectangular racing course. And if you look now, they solved that problem by just putting in a wooden turning bar into the pool to create a rectangular course within the non-rectangular pool. Um, The other thing about the ocean pools is um, now at that stage, rope lanes aren't part of the competitive swimming scene. And Boyd Charlton sees them for the first time when he goes to the, the Paris Olympics after World War I. So when people are racing, they space them out at the start of the race. And then it's like running races. They come together in a pack. You know, um, so in the ocean pools with a bit of waves coming over the sides, there was potential for some, you know, upsets and complications. It's never been a controlled environment. So there's a bit of added excitement and surprises in all the competitions that you stage in ocean pools.
1: Yeah, well, I was going to say, it sounds like the racing was actually more exciting than you
0: might get in (laughs) in an Olympic indoor swimming pool. That's right, much less controlled situation. And at this stage, it's considered a bit boring if you just have swimming races in your carnival. So people really like novelty events, you know, um, dressing up in costumes, swimming with your clothing on. People also used to perform tricks like the um, sack trick. Remember of the novel The Count of Monte Cristo, Mm. the prisoner escapes by being sewn up in a sack that's tossed into the ocean and he cuts his way out with a knife and swims to the surface. Well, people used to perform that trick in uh, ocean pools. And they also were um, used for water polo. And with water polo, there's another complication. People would say, well, with the waves coming over the side, we couldn't really see whether someone had their feet on the floor of the pool or not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, we really are focusing this conversation on the research you've done in New South Wales. But what about your now home state, WA? Does it have ocean, constructed ocean pools?
0: Uh, it does. Uh, Metham's pool is one such thing. The Metham, generations of the Metham family worked to clear away the sharp-lined stone rocks and create a safe bathing and swimming pool there. And Mr Metham had come home from World War One with an injury. Part of his rehabilitation was walking up and down in the seawater, was helping his legs to recover from the damage they'd sustained during the war. So that got him looking at ocean pools and wanting to create this safe space for the local people. But in Western Australia, they never... They were never the basis for swimming clubs and competitive swimming. That was based in the um, the river bars of the Swan River.
1: Well, by the 1960s, municipal swimming pools are much more prevalent, aren't they? As well as
0: backyard swimming pools. Does that mean the ocean pools fall out of fashion? By the um, 1960s, more um, communities are affluent enough to be able to create these in-ground pools. And because they can be a more controlled environment, they can be filtered, they can be chlorinated, they can be heated, they seem very modern and very progressive. But ocean pools are still being created as places for recreation, competition and school swimming. So in the early 1960s, you get ocean pools being created in the Illawarra at Balambi and Taraji. I think the Taraji one opens the day of the Tokyo Olympics and it's very much with the thought that some of the children who might learn to swim in this pool will go on to become Olympic champions. So it's considered still a possible training ground. And in the 1960s, there are very few indoor pools in Australia. So for the Tokyo Olympics, the Australian swim team has to go north to Townsville to find a warm water outdoor pool that they can train in because there are no indoor pools that they can use as training environments. And because most of those outdoor in-ground pools would be emptied and closed over the winters, Olympic swimmers were still training in ocean pools because they were open. They still had water uh, over the winter. When was the last ocean pool built? The last... Without being absolutely certain, one of the latest ones must be the one at Yamba, which is late 1960s. And a young Shane Gula, I think, swims at the opening of that pool. Mm. And then in the 1970s, you get the rise of these indoor aquatic centres, which offer very controlled environments. But they're almost a complete antithesis of the ocean pool. They're worlds of their own. They're not part of the place outside themselves as much, whereas an ocean pool belongs to its very specific environment. They're beautiful pools because they're inevitably going to be sited in beautiful places with beautiful views. And they look like they belong to their landscape. When I started doing my work on ocean pools back in the 1990s, one of the really interesting reactions I got from people was that they'd ask me, "Uh, you're looking at the history of ocean pools, weren't they always there? Hmm. Because they looked like they belonged so much. They're man-made structures that are never really dominating the landscape. The ocean is always dominating the ocean pool.
1: Well, there has been uh, a push much more recently than... Say that last ocean pool built in Yamba in 1969, a much more recent one proposed for Ballina on the New South Wales north coast near Byron Bay. Uh, But there's also opposition to that. People who argue that ocean pool construction is part of a bygone
0: era. Do you take their point? No, I I don't take their point entirely. I think ocean pools can deliver some very special benefits that other sorts of pools can't. And one of the things is that if all your swimming is done in very controlled swimming environments and you ever find yourself in the water that that isn't part of a controlled environment, then you're in... In big trouble. So in an ocean pool, you learn to cope with the ocean being the dominant force in your swimming environment. You're going to have to keep an eye on the waves. You're going to have to share the pool with the other things that the ocean washes in and the other things that live in the pool. So that could be the sea urchins, it could be the seaweed, it could be the fish, the crabs, and the octopus. Now that's an experience you're not going to get in a in a highly controlled indoor aquatic center. So they're important um, for the people who actually swim in them. They're still important for seaside tourism. So they do serve a great variety of functions. And of course, with the, uh, and that's not year round in every case, but winter swimming, which was pretty strange and unusual when the um, early 20th century, when the Bronte splashes and the Bondi icebergs Mm. came into existence, is now much more popular. So a lot of these ocean pools have their own winter swimming clubs and they are being used year round. They're special places. They're special places. And I think that's part of why we're seeing the reaction now that other pools, uh, the in-ground pools, the indoor aquatic centres, were becoming too standardised and yes you can have a backyard pool of all of your own but it can't deliver quite the same pleasures that the ocean pool can. So they draw people in because they are moody places, that's one of their appeals to swimmers, it's not the same conditions every day. The swim is different every day, the pool is different every day and that's a big part of the pleasure that it does deliver.
1: And Mari-Louise McDermott is a historian whose special subject is ocean pools. She's the author of Befriend Ocean Pools. And before her, at the Fairy Bower Rock Pool at Manly in New South Wales, I was with pool regular there, Robin Hall. Here on Radio National, as well as on the ABC Listen app, Sporty is produced by Rosa Ellen, and I'm Amanda Smith.